This is Pop Fiction Women. I'm Corinne. I'm Kate. And we're complicated. Blunt. Total boss. But sometimes a mess. Opinionated. But never boring. And in this podcast, we're discussing the complicated women of the best books, TV, and movies. Along with the complicated women behind the scenes. Warning, lots of spoilers ahead. So come back when you're done. Hurry up, it's starting. Promising Young Woman, Kate and I are joined by a friend of mine, Caroline Burke. Caroline is a writer best known for her Taylor Swift cover stories project on Instagram and Patreon. She attended the University of Virginia and received her MFA from Bennington. She lives outside Boston with her husband, their two cats, and their Airstream Fargo. Caroline's debut novel, Furious, is forthcoming, though not soon enough. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for having me. I have been an avid fan of this podcast, and it's such a joy to be talking about something that I'm so interested in with two lovely ladies. I did not know the title of your soon-to-be-released novel, which is amazing. It's called Furious. I'm already. That's just, I want that book. (laughs) I don't even know what it's about, and I want it. That is such a good title. Thank you. Corinne has been in the trenches with me, let's say, on this novel for about, God, I think two years now. And she was also my big writing buddy for the first novel that I wrote that I got my agent with. So I don't know. It's it's very surreal to be talking to you now with our friendship, you know, spanning multiple years. It's very surreal. And it's so fun to see what you've been doing, Corinne and Kate, with your literary pursuits. It's exciting to see people kind of spread their wings. It is wild. We were randomly put together as roommates. We shared uh, a cabin together. We did. (laughs) (laughs) The only adults who were like, yes, I'll take the shared room. I mean, I didn't even think about it. I was like, of course I want a roommate. This is what I I loved it. We got to gossip. That's Um, probably a whole nother episode right there. It's (laughs) the after hours in the cabin. (laughs) So we have invited Caroline to discuss Promising Young Woman with us. Not just because she's very smart and interesting, which she is, but because her thesis at Bennington examined the portrayal of both target and perpetrator of sexual assault in contemporary literature. So Promising Young Woman avoids, as we've discussed a little bit beforehand, a lot of the pitfalls and damaging tropes that she is going to highlight for us as we discuss. And then at the end, we'll unveil the Burke test, which is very exciting. You'll hear it here first. Wow. I will hear it here first. (laughs) We'll start with Cassie as our complicated woman. But first, I, I need to talk a little bit about expectations of this movie. The trailer was a lot of Carrie Mulligan in a rainbow wig and the nurse's costume. And I thought this is going to be a very farcical movie. I thought immediately of Kill Bill. I thought she was going to be, you know, like cutting off people's appendages and Mm. blood would be shooting to the ceiling. I thought it would be very over the top in that way. And the opening scene kind of fed into that for me. I don't know if you guys remember it, but it's this reversal of the dog type of thing. It starts at a club. A group of men are dancing, not just some men. It's a group of men and you see with women, but you don't see that often with men and Mm -hmm. the camera cuts to body parts that we traditionally again focus on for women butts midriffs crotch shots all to the soundtrack of this like poppy electric 
woman that's singing that she can't stop thinking about boys. It mm-hmm. feels, it almost to me feels like a send up of the very beginning of Something's Gotta Give with, I don't know. Oh, don't, oh yeah, my uh, God. It, because that is, we hear Jack Nicholson's voice and he's like, women, I love women. Yes. And it is, and it's playing that song, oh God. Uh, I'm too sexy. Come, or no, 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 no. B- butterfly. Yes, thank you, butterfly. Sugar baby, and it's all of these cuts of women and their long legs and their flowing hair, and yes. it's all types of women. But I don't know. To me, this just felt like a send up of that. But as you watch the movie, it is completely different. It really turned hard in the direction of nuance rather than over the top kind of farce. Was anyone else shocked by how this movie played out? Not, we'll get to the ending, but the feeling of it. I have been thinking about this because we talked about this briefly, Corinne. I agree. I think that the trailer promised one thing that was a little bit more, like, almost peppy. And I think Mm. that the one thing I noticed that's really in the movie that you don't see in the trailer is grief. The the trailer feels very almost sitcom-y, kind of in the way that you've seen men satirize this, like American Psycho, where it's kind of, like, ironic. And the trailer kind of had that feeling. And then when I watched the movie, there is, like, this really palpable grief throughout it. Like, even her humor, she's so clearly this heartbroken person and it made me think about I remember when Ocean's 8 the Sandra Bullock switch of it when that came out there were a lot of think pieces about it that I at first kind of pushed against but now agree with which basically argued that to have real representation in films you can't flip it because it doesn't work like stories that men act out don't work the same way for women because of like Mm. the cultural ways that we move through the world and when I thought about it that way I was like wow I'm so happy that they did this the way that they did it because because this is such a female movie like it's directed by a woman it's helmed by women it's it and I think that that's kind of the feeling that you can't really separate it like even though you have rage and you have like irony and all of this stuff at the base of it there's this sadness because you know that it's almost like pointless it's almost like Uh, a drama rather than an action film yeah I I agree I'm very happy and I I did hear Emerald Fennell talk about that that it's not realistic to just flip it and I I was very happy with it I just was surprised in a I guess in a good way yeah, I, I we've had this a, a couple times, Corinne, I feel like where we felt like the trailer was misleading. There was a few where we're like, it really doesn't jive with what actually goes on in the movie. But I do, I did hear her say, you know, that she wanted this to be sort of a beautifully wrapped candy. And when you eat it, you realize it's poisonous. Mm-hmm. And so th- there is supposed to be like... And we'll talk about it, I'm sure, you know, with the music and with the colors and the tone. There's a lot of rom-com elements, all of which Mm -hmm. is intentional to make it seem, it's like a subversion, subverts like feminine ideas, but underneath is, of course, a really serious, brutal content at times. Yeah. Okay. Cassandra, played by Carrie Mulligan, is our complicated woman. Cassie is a 30-year-old med school dropout who lives at home with her parents and works at a coffee shop. 
I heard Emerald Fennell say that she used named Cassandra after the Cassandra <gasps> in Greek mythology. Did you yes! hear this? Yes, yes. I was going to say this. I love yes, this. The princess yeah. of Troy who was cursed by the god Apollo such that even though she speaks the truth, she is never believed, which is obviously oh very fitting, right? And why I, is she not believed? Because apparently she denied the gods' advances, so he cursed her. Yeah. You know, so he gave her this gift to be able to see things, then tortured her and caused her despair by making sure no one would ever believe her. Oh my God! Wow, right? I love Which that is she something you ab- I mean, exactly you absolutely don't need to know that at all. But the right. layers of this movie, because it doesn't matter. Her name is just Cassie. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Right. But then when you know that, you're like, oh, she thought about all of this. Exactly. <laughs> I I am obsessed with Carrie Mulligan, as I'm sure any anyone is who watches films. Right. But yeah. I, it's the type of mm-hmm. information that you hear and you immediately think like, oh, that was central to her understanding how to play this character because there's so much of how she moves and exists in this movie it's just on another level she threads such a needle and when you give that information like about her name that's the type of stuff where I'm like oh yeah she definitely she definitely knew that while she was acting yes Yes. absolutely oh yes I think we're gonna just talk about her a lot through the scenes some of our favorite scenes in this movie my first one, and I don't know if anybody has one before this, because mine comes a little later, but my first one was the scene with Connie Britton, the dean. I had that one school. highlighted too. Oh my yeah. gosh. I do have that, but I really did think just in terms of setting up Cassie and yeah. and the story, just that opening sequence in terms of setting Oof. the stage, yeah. right, that, right, that culminates with Adam Brody bringing her home. You're only about seven minutes in and, and we all know you know she's pretending to be drunk or whatever but at that point you don't you don't know and just that moment when she gets totally lucid and her eyes wide open and she's like I said what are you doing and that line I, that was such an amazing introduction to Cassie and I just saw what a perfect setup to a character and how this movie's going to unfold like from that moment on I was like oh shit like yeah it's game on in that scene it's also just so meta because whenever I watch that scene I'm reminded of the fact that she's acting and that all of it is a portrayal mm. and it it always kind of like breaks my brain because it feels like this, <laughs> this this like rip in the matrix where you're reminded that this whole thing is fake and it also just highlights what an incredible actress she is because there are so many yeah. layers of inauthenticity happening oh my god I did not even think of that you just broke my brain just now oh my god (laughs) yes right right she's acting and then she's acting that she's acting and oh my gosh yeah it's crazy crazy so since you've gone since you've gone to this one you could really talk about every scene in this movie but what about the the next scene where she's doing that which is isn't, isn't it McLovin is that who it is the guy yes. who she Is takes it? home. Thank you. Oh Thank my you. God, it's McLovin. How did I not yeah. notice? So how did you feel when you found out that she wasn't doing anything? She's not harming them. Because so after the Adam Brody one, she leaves and she like is eating a hot dog or a sausage or something. And you don't know if it's ketchup or blood kind of dotted on her leg and her arm. And you are left to wonder at that point. But then later in the movie, we do find out that she is not harming them. She's just scaring them. And shaming them or something. Shaming them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How did you feel about that? I was well, disappointed. I, oh, I was really? too. 
I was you too. You want her to be killing them? I mean, I once you watch the whole film, you understand that you're going to get your satisfaction in another direction. But there was a point, a part of me that just kind of thought, I really want to see, I really want to lean into this revenge in the most literal, yeah. physical way and see what it looks like for a woman to do it. But again, I think that the movie absolutely earns that pivot and I'm happy that it didn't right. happen. And you see, I, I thought she did revenge the way oh, the way uniquely a woman would do it, which is like through a mind game and through shame and through just, you know what I mean? If she did it with violence, I felt like that would be very masculine. And I kind of right. liked that this was like our own brand of revenge. I don't know. but Yeah, Emerald Fennell said that she wanted it to have all the beats and the structure of a revenge thriller but to be feasible and female and she said it's oh, not okay. it's not a fair thing to expect that a woman commits acts of violence against men in the night which i get it oh, and I and didn't more, even know that i didn't read that but okay. yeah and more to kara's point the whole movie came through for me but in that moment i think like mm. you're saying i was disappointed i was like well what the hell like that's all that that's all this is and I, I did have that. But by the way, I loved being disappointed by it. And then she just turned me around every which way. I can't even tell you how many I watched this movie with my husband. And I just turned to him and I'm like, what is happening? So many times. And in a good way, I was not confused. I was just off kilter and not in a bad way. In a way like, what am I seeing? I'm seeing something I've never seen before. And I'm so engrossed and I'm so entertained and stimulated and yet I've never seen it before how is that possible well and I think too because she doesn't because she doesn't act on the violence in those early scenes I think that your interest is kind of peaked and then there are some things become increasingly twisted and I think you you see her kind of like leaning over the edge with all these people and you have these conversations that are getting increasingly uncomfortable and there were points throughout like when she's at dinner with her college friends and I'm thinking oh my god she's gonna you know something's gonna happen and I think that that's kind of the game that the director is playing twisting and twisting and twisting and never basically giving us the satisfaction of something actually going wrong and then the ending is like right Right. (laughs) the the thing went wrong yeah Yeah. so let's talk about Connie Britton because that is and it's the and what you just explained is exactly why I didn't pick the Alison Brie scene even though I was gonna pick the Alison Brie scene which is right before the Alison Brie one as you're watching it is amazing and then you get to the Connie Britton one and you're like okay but this is really over the like this is the star here right because you didn't think her paying some dude to take Allison Brie back to the hotel room and basically set her up and fuck with her that way. What well, I thought that was pretty yeah. extreme. And I, I thought know. he was I, gonna have sex with her unconscious. Oh, totally. yeah, totally. Because I mean, I I don't yeah. think at that point we understand all of the things that she sets up and won't go through with just to make the person feel the way she wants them to feel. Yes. And she she never, but she doesn't go through with the actual harm part. And yeah. I don't think we know it at that point. So. I definitely was like, it's fucked up. But then we got to the Connie Britton one. And it's not only what she's done, which is above and beyond taking the daughter. She's gone above and beyond what she did with Alison Brie. But really, this, the thing that makes it the star for me is the dialogue and the way mm. she walks Connie Britton into eating every single word she says. Mm-hmm. Right. She's like, 
oh, you don't remember. And first of all, Connie Britton's defense for not remembering is that this happens a lot. That's a terrible thing. And then she's like, well, I, I have to take his word for it, innocent until proven guilty. But I don't understand what does that make Nina? And she's, Carrie Mulligan sitting there looking at her like, do you understand what you're saying? What about her? Why isn't she innocent? Meaning you believe everything she says until proven that she's a liar or proven that she has somehow done something. Like why, why does all of this work for the man, but patently not for the woman? And Mm -hmm. she's just feeding it one, one thing after the next, like, Oh, well, drinking too much leads to regrettable decisions. But it's never, the regrettable decision is never raping a woman or, you know, sexually assaulting an unconscious woman or having sex with an unconscious woman. Whatever it is, the regrettable decisions are always being the subject of such regrettable decision as opposed to the one who perpetrates it. And it's painful to watch. But also you kind of like want to laugh. I mean, I felt every emotion watching this scene. Yeah. And then she find, at the end gets the dean to admit she was wrong. And, and she has that great line like, I guess you just needed a different perspective. Right? Like you <laughs> yeah. needed to see this from the other point of view um, of your own. And it took me, you know, kidnapping your own daughter. Yes. Yeah, someone you to see it. For someone, someone for it to happen to someone you love. Yes. Right. Right. And I... I, that's why I do put these two together. I mean, they did have these two scenes with Alison yep. Brie and Connie Britton are back yep. to back. And, you know, I, Emerald Fennell talked about how this film had a lot to say about how women treat women who've been sexually assaulted. And, you know, because Alison Brie's character, you know, said, you know, things like, I don't make the rules, you know, when you have mm-hmm. a reputation, that's what happens. Don't yeah. get blackout drunk and have sex with someone you don't want to. And Connie Britton was like, what would you have me do? Ruin a boy's life every time there's an accusation? You know, all the things you just said. And, you know, she said, Emerald Fennell, like, you can't write a film like this unless you examine yourself and your own past. If this is a movie about forgiveness, it's important to say this is just a culture we've all grown up in. The incidents in this movie are in every romantic comedy, every TV show. We laugh at them. And she said, when I was thinking about the character of Madison, that's Alison Brie character, Mm -hmm. I had to think about how might I have done better in the past. Of course, you want certain characters to be all bad or you want to hate them. But there's also a kind of rotten truth to it. And there are so many arguments from both sides that we've heard. It happened to all of us. But I really like him and I'm not sure he would. Or what if they don't believe me? And she said, the movie itself is just a sample of the excuses and the lies that we kind of tell ourselves when we let ourselves down. And I thought that was so interesting. Like she was so careful to make sure that everybody is thinks about their own complicity. I have a yeah, question about a, that. Yes, yes. So I'm curious, I some of those lines worked for me and some of them didn't. And I think I'm curious if you guys, I, I mean, it's, it's clearly intentional that she inserted a ton of lines that you hear in, yes. in these conversations. And at times I couldn't tell if I felt like, okay, this, we've heard this a thousand times. Like this doesn't really, like we, we all quote unquote, we all know that this is ridiculous to say. And I think it's kind of the challenge of being alive at this point in time is that we move through things so quickly that it's like the me too movement was what five years ago and already you know tiktokers are like oh my god that's 50 years ago of course 
of course this should <laughs> never happen but I was curious yeah. if you guys like bought into all of those moments or if it just kind of felt like the payoff was worth that they were kind of I don't want to say tired because nothing about this movie is tired but do you know what I mean yeah do you do you yeah. mean Alison Brie or Connie Britton or both both I mean I, Connie Britton's a great example where the payoff of that scene is so worth it that we find out that the daughter is in the dorm room but mm-hmm. there were moments with Connie Britton where she would say well you know this happens all the time and I would just kind of think I've seen this so many times and it kind of feels mm-hmm. like we've we have interrogated this culturally but maybe we haven't and that could just be yeah, my I bubble no yeah I think we haven't I think uh, I, I think it is it seems overused to as you're suggesting but also i think it's still very common and and but i i don't know though it is hard to separate it from the payoff but i had it i had a little bit of that feeling with the allison brie one with the connie Britton one it felt like something a a university dean would say still you Mm -hmm. know forget about Mm -hmm. society and what we find acceptable the question is i don't know will the corporate line and and universities are corporations like will that ever change will that ever really move but i hear what you're saying and it was only for me that that she kept feeding the lines that were what exactly come back to haunt her when it was in relation to her daughter like i'm sure they'll take care of her though don't worry i think sadly i the the way that the reason allison brie one kind of hits me a little is I actually think that I have friends or know people that would still say this today. Oh, uh, yeah. That would still talk like that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, which is yeah. disturbing. And I think that's while I've heard it. And so in that sense, it seems a little trite. I'm also like, but fuck, I think I think they would. I think there's a lot of internalized misogyny. I think that there are friends of mine that would still be like, well, you know, she shouldn't have got so drunk. Right. Oh. I think, too, that I guess my defense for including those lines in this movie would be that the it seems like so clear that the goal for this was to basically flip a lot of these narratives on their head. Mm-hmm. And in order to yeah. do that, you kind of have to keep a finger attached to the old narratives in order Absolutely. to highlight them. Absolutely. I probably should have read the rest of the quote I was just reading, because right after that, <laughs> Emerald <laughs> Fennel says, it's not just a movie for people who are very well versed in all of this stuff. I feel very privileged that it's Uh, something that I care deeply about but for generational reasons or all sorts of reasons lots of people haven't thought that deeply about this and it needs to be accessible to all of them so uh, you know I guess that kind of speaks to it yeah Yeah. no that that makes complete sense and and how about Connie Britton screaming that was a really smart shot to take it out of the room and hear that muffled screaming because it just works on so many levels first of all you know it's probably you assume it's not her doing that it's not the dean who's screaming like that and also like that's what it sounds like through walls I mean it's just the whole thing really really stayed with me after that scene I was like wow totally shifting gears my next one is in the pharmacy I have that whole I call it the fall in love sequence so I'm with you I mean it is a rom-com montage completely yeah on purpose I mean those were moments when I was like what am I watching Mm -hmm. because or at that point I was like 
Ryan is going to change everything for her and they're really going to fall in love. And she had just, isn't it? She just comes back from Nina's mom's house and Nina's Mm -hmm. mom's like, let it go, you know, move on with your life. And she's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let it go and I'm going to be happy and love and I'm going to trust a man and my life is going to be great. And you see it. She brings the man home to meet her parents. Oh yeah. That's yeah. I mean that it's they have a moment then her parents everything yes. is turning around. Also yes. her parents house deserves a podcast all on its own. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh so we're going to we're going to talk about that. We're going to come back to that later the aesthetic elements of this movie. But yeah. But that in the pharmacy like he's singing excuse me are you singing Paris Hilton stars are blind and he leans into it and he's dancing in the aisles I mean it is and then at the end he's like god I haven't danced like that in a pharmacy in weeks I mean there's it's it's a really funny movie first of all and I'm a sucker for a good song montage of falling in love. Mm-hmm. And you know, see them in bed and they're cuddling up and they're they're laughing together. And I was just I was just a complete sucker for it. And I didn't know what was happening. And I didn't really think it was gonna all turn around, but I was also like, this is going on for a long time. They want us to really sit in this montage, happiness, falling in love kind of thing. And I mean, the whole, I think I'm falling in love, that whole scene was so cute. And, and they have chemistry. Like, they totally do. Yes. And play cool. He's like, I'm cool. I'm the coolest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have this great rapport. You're right. I saw it. I was like, this is a possibility. Like, yeah. I mean, I should have known that's not the way. This isn't a rom-com. That's right. not the way the rest of the movie was going to go, but... Yeah, and he's like, "Your mom's hot. I could, I could give you her number. Really, you could. So good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> that was that is definitely a star part of of this movie for me. It almost feels throwaway, and yet it's just fun. It's just, it's a very rewatchable scene. I have already rewatched it many yes. times. It's just, and it's so awkward, but at the same time." cute it's just exactly what you want in a i think it is a perfect perfect rom-com sequence if we were doing a rom-com i would absolutely love it just as much and i think here it's just it works so well for what comes after it so uh, it can yeah. just again just completely slam you in another direction it's interesting because i think it's another example of why this film is such high level art because they give you exactly what you want. You're at a point in the film where you want her to move on. You really feel that feeling of like, forget the revenge. You want her to be happy. And I think it's a testament to her acting that you can like see how her life has been ended. It's a testament to his acting that you can see he genuinely wants to build a life with her. Like you just, you basically see, it's like you're walking down this road and it's getting darker and scarier. And all of a sudden there's this lit up path that's like yeah. gorgeous mm. and cute and you're like go down that path yes and, and then also, at the end yeah. obviously you're like ah oh, of course you couldn't go down that path but right but right. it fe- but it's what it's amazing to me is that it feels earned that it yeah. didn't mm-hmm. feel like she just decided to stick a rom-com moment in there there were little things that she built up to little quirky things like the spitting in the coffee her throwing the garbage can I think we'll talk about that stuff a little more later but there were so many things that you built up to that you didn't know if this was going to go well or not and it felt like they had truly built to a place where this was going to be 
good. This was going to be yeah. a good relationship. And that is the shocking part to me because I I don't know how this doesn't feel like a random scene yeah. that someone had in their Out head. Of place. That, yeah, that mm-hmm. just they were like, I'm really wed to the scene. I'm not gonna kill my darlings. I'm just gonna stick this great scene in. And truthfully, even if she hadn't done it so well, I think this this scene would have passed. People would have just liked to see this scene, period. Yeah. Yes, but it yes. re but to, the thing that blows me away is that it it really felt earned. It came at the right time. It had the right tone. Then Madison shows up with her phone and takes oh, it all Jesus. away from us. It, yeah. And so that's my last. But you're last... on a high. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You're, you, it also works so well because it, it brings you up for all the reasons you just said. And then you just come crashing down. And I, mean, I think... Yeah. I think it also plays a perfect trap on the audience where it's like we are the final people who are caught basically twisting mm. our words because when I watch her watch that video, a yeah. part of me is thinking, I'm sure you can work it out with him. Like there is a part of me that's like, <laughs> what? You love yes. him and he loves you. Yes. And it's like oh it's God. like the movie is playing the the trick on you. Yes. My first thought was, oh, well, you know, people can change. He's grown up. He wouldn't do that now. Meanwhile, that'll come back too. But when she watches that video and you're looking at her face... And it's just you're you're already tormented for hearing her friend and Mm -hmm. knowing what's going on. And then you hear Ryan's Him. voice. Oh, God. <gasps> I almost, I, I, I freaked out. I did what you just did. <gasps> no. I mean, not many movies have that dramatic of an impact for me. And that was, that was shocking. And not in a good way. <laughs> I did not see that coming at all. And, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure why. We know that he was in med school with them and that he traveled in the same circles. But yet... I don't know. I just yeah. I was just so hurt. I, I was out. hurt on behalf yes. of her. I'm like, I feel hurt now because if you had told me that in the beginning, I would have been like, okay, it makes sense. Or he told me that at the end, I'd be more pissed. But right after the scene, when right the after he sang Paris Hilton, love, are you kidding me? Yes. I'm no. like, oh god. Were you shocked too, Caroline? Yes, I was absolutely shocked. And I also, I mean, I'm constantly fangirling over Carrie Mulligan. But again, I think during that scene, I was reminded of just what an astounding actress she is because you almost forget throughout the movie that you don't know Nina. You don't even really have Mm. pictures of her. And everyone's acting performance is so incredible that you really feel her presence. And I think, again, like watching Carrie Mulligan watch that video you feel like you're watching it and I I think a a less brave director would have probably had flashbacks I was thinking about that a lot like because I think about that with my writing like flashbacks can be great but they can also be an easy way out and I was just thinking like damn it's so brave of her and confident to not have a single flashback and to just trust that we are going to feel the way that Carrie feels when she's or Cassie the way that Cassie feels when she's looking at that video I agree that scene just shocked me it really did and I think about this a lot in plotting where you give information and it would have felt so different in different places but having it come right then was just the bottom out it's just the bottom out of my stomach and my 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 feelings for them it was 
it was also worse. his role is perfect for the film yeah like the bystander mm-hmm. is the most frustrating role because we really don't know what to do with it you know it's like it would be easier if he was one of the guys who had sex with her but he's mm-hmm. not he's just laughing on the side and it's so easy to push it in either direction like it's so mm-hmm. easy to make right. him a complete villain but it's also so easy to excuse him and to be like he was a drunk kid in college and so right. it's, yeah. it's, it makes it perfectly yeah. complicated because you don't get there isn't closure in that scene I didn't know what she was going to do I I probably thought something bad was going to happen but I didn't know how the rest of the film would depict him because how bad of a guy is he like I don't know right we don't know we don't we don't know the thing we do know certainly by the end and I can't remember how I felt exactly in that moment but the thing we do know is that Cassie thinks anyone who has any Yes. Complicity mm-hmm. in this is pure villain. So yeah. she would find that to be disgusting and, right. and not excusable, even though, not when it comes to Nina. How she would react, but it yeah. was not, I don't think, necessarily the way I would react. Right. So you, you there's this tension watching. Yes. Even though I knew how she would, it that didn't matter. I was still conflicted just because yeah. I know that it's probably not consistent with how I would have. And we've only, I know we don't know him, but what we've been shown, right, particularly with the prior scene, is is a really amazing guy. <laughs> so, you well, know, I mean, they it, make her, yeah. well, they make it's a him little a more pediatric surgeon. Yes. It's like they, she yes. even purposely made him like, yes. he helps kids, you yeah. know, I know, but yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. No, for sure. But he is more nuanced than that. Those like fact things, as if him being a pediatric surgeon, the Venn diagram of pediatric surgeons and people who have been complicit in sexual assault are like, there's zero overlap. I mean, they don't have anything to do with each other, like at all. So, <laughs> oh my God. I was right. just thinking of her mother, by the way, who was so good, Jennifer Coolidge, so, whatever. Like, yes. so do kids have different body parts or organs <laughs> oh my god just nope just different that. colored band-aids yeah exactly very it's, it's actually a very funny movie too yes. at times it's so, so I, funny you know, it, definitely it is definitely oh god we gotta get to the end here i think yeah i mean not right. the end of the podcast i mean the end no, the, of the scenes yeah the movie scenes right so that so i like i i know we talked about this Corinne, like what's really the end i think this the scene I want to talk sort of leads into the what I call the real ending, but it's when she gets to the cabin and has Al. God, Al. Al yeah. This is new. Al Monroe. Oh my God. Al sort of chained to the bed. So I don't know. I don't think anyone has anything before that. I think we'll we'll talk about this and then into the rest of the ending. But yeah, to me, this is the ending. Scene. This is the end. Yeah, the beginning right, of the ending. Right when she puts on that. Well, the beginning of the ending to me is the Ryan on the on the video and then them breaking up and then her going there she's got him on the bed and handcuffed and we find out you know why she dropped out of med school and you know he's like groveling like you know i was affected too you know it's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that and she says uh can you guess what every woman's worst <laughs> oh is? that crushed yeah. me uh, yeah Oh, my gosh. And then she goes into what Carrie Mulligan calls, you know, Cassie's soliloquy. And she said that this is what made her want to do this movie when she read the script. So she's literally on top of him, like looking down in control of the scene at this point. And she starts telling him about Nina, you know, and she was so smart. She was fully formed since day one. We find out that she's known her since she was four years old. 
and and this is the soliloquy like i was in awe of her she didn't give a fuck what anyone else thought she was just nina and then she wasn't suddenly she was something else she was yours it wasn't her name she heard when she was walking around it was yours your name all around her all over her all the time and it just squeezed her out so when i heard your name again your filthy fucking name i wondered when was the last time anyone had said hers or even thought it apart from me and it made me so sad because al you should be the one with her name all over you Oh my god! So I, I, good, I, I have goosebumps. And she's got the scalpel. Could you imagine? I was like, in that moment, so happy. I'm like, she is going to carve Nina's name, her name, in yes. all in his body, very sharp objects. And I'm like, and he's gonna have to go to his wedding with another woman's yes. name scarred on him. Yeah. I'm like, this is a brilliant. That's when I was revenge. all for violence. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's when I was for violence. Get the scalpel and yeah. write her name. I mean, oh. that, yeah, yeah. It's also, it, I had so much, I felt so much closure at this point of the film that the fact yeah. that it mm-hmm. continued another 15 yeah. minutes, <laughs> I watched it for the first time and I actively said I hated the film for like a week after because I was so upset that it didn't end there. But it, right. it really is just like another example of just how brave the directing mm. is and what how brilliant yeah. the film is because there are so many points where you are like tempted with the stereotype of satisfaction like what you think yes. you want and then it just totally flips it and is like actually this is what you need the stereotype of point. satisfaction oh my god yes that is exactly i would have been very happy and i would be like that's original this is the perfect ending but because, of course, she couldn't leave it at that. Unless you're like me, as Corinne knows, and I read all these articles and uh, ruined the ending for me, and I already knew oh, that she was going to die, I just know. for the record. That's so, so upsetting. I know. It's not It's not as upsetting to me as it is to every... It's, Corinne's like, I would have I would have just... I, I wouldn't it would have been, have been over it. for me. I just... I wouldn't have been able to watch it. So I didn't know there was more coming. As soon as he was free, I knew she was going to die. And my husband's oh, like, yeah. Carrie Mulligan doesn't die. I'm sorry. This is not going to happen. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's going to die. And I'm like, that is the more realistic ending. She doesn't get to escape. She doesn't get to have a good life because that's not usually the way it works. The promising young man is is more of the thing than the promising young woman. It, it never goes well for us. Right, right. But she does get some revenge. She had thought about things ahead of time and had made a plan for in case she didn't make it back and so she does so again so she dies and we're like oh my god she's dead there she is dead oh no wait I can't even skip over when his friend comes in and he's like the one who's like really oh my god it's not your fault I wanted to oh I was so it made me so angry in a good way Mm. in a good way like I was like this is exactly what would fucking happen and it is exactly his fault (laughs) are you kidding me that was infuriating but then we move on and we know Cassie has made a plan for just in case something had happened to her and the police pull up at the wedding 
And she had mailed the phone with the video on it and I, I guess some other notes probably to, who is it, Alfred Molina's? The defense, yeah. Yeah, the, Molina, right. the, the good lawyer. Yeah. Yes, well, not not good at the time, but good, well, change of heart yes, guy. Repentant lawyer. Yes, yes that's yes. right. And he, you know, got them into the right hands and, and he's arrested for murdering her. And now he wasn't going to get, he was never going to get in trouble and charged and prosecuted for the the sexual assault of med school but you can't get out of murder or at least yeah at least I can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least i can hope that but th- so then that was satisfying in and of itself i was really happy with it no i was i don't know i think i'm like still heartbroken that she died i don't know i think all I all of carrie no, mulligan's films she just there are so few actors on like from anywhere that kind of embody a person the way that she does and I think I was just like so shocked that that the person I had watched was no longer it was like a real grief like oh my god she's just dead but again that's why it's such a good movie I wouldn't have still been thinking about it if she was alive and I also think there's a lot of like I don't know if it's biblical but there's a lot of it's like she had to die. Like she was consumed yeah. by this. It's maybe it's like a Greek myth. Mm-hmm. Like she was never going to live without uh, this like grief over her Being friend. Haunted. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just kept thinking, why do the women have to die at the end? If this is supposed to be an honest female film, then it just it tracked for me. It it's does. not aspirational. It, it is not aspirational. I agree. But I do think too, this is a conversation that I've, started to try having more frequently like the conversation about well is it trying to be true to to reality and also like well does it have an obligation to depict a different version of reality like the one that we want Mm. like when you think about all the criticisms about shows having white characters and the argument is like well you know how many people in Brooklyn do you see like a lot of white people do only know white people in Brooklyn and the argument and maybe I'm thinking about like girls or something. And the argument yeah. that I've become more interested in recently is basically like, right, but but art leads culture and it also leads mm. politics. And in order for us to see those differences in real life, we have to see them depicted in entertainment, which I think is fascinating. And I do think it kind yeah. of like I when I watched this movie, my immediate thought was, oh, at the end, of course she has to die because women don't ever win with this. Even if you win the court right. case, right. you always lose. Yeah. But then I, I do think there's a question of like, maybe the next movie that comes along, a woman does win so that you see it depicted yeah. and you have that opportunity. I feel like in this scenario, a movie about sexual assault wrapped with revenge, wrapped with falling in love, I just, it would have felt to me a bridge too far. Well, let me say, I think she could have lived. You could have had her walk off alone into the sunset, but it would have... It, it it would have had to have some sort of sour or sad note. Like she's alone and she, we don't know if she's ever going to have a better life. I think by her dying and her getting that revenge, I got to have a little bit of both of it. Like your cake and eat it. Even though she died, she got real, true police procedural revenge. Emerald Fennell thought the exact same way. Oh, I have okay. a quote. Like yeah. she, you guys are, you guys are channeling her, <laughs> her thoughts. Well, because she talked about this, or or maybe someone asked her about this Margaret Atwood quote. There, I guess she wrote that when she once, it's pretty famous. Like she was at, she asked a male friend, Margaret Atwood, why men feel threatened by women, and he answered. 
they're afraid women will laugh at them. Mm-hmm. And when she asked a group of women why they feel threatened by men, they said, we're afraid of being killed. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah. And it's a pretty, it's apparently a pretty, it's been yeah. shortened to that, yeah. right? But so an, an interviewer asked her, Mar- Emerald Fennell about that and how much was that something that you essentially wanted to hit on in this movie and she said I think certainly it's sort of a constant concern especially if you're writing a movie about this sort of thing it's really interesting when you're writing about when women are vulnerable and consent all of this sort of thing what Margaret Atwood explained so deftly there is that it's an impossible imbalance to overcome there's a physical mismatch that's kind of a worry and so if I wanted to make a revenge thriller that felt like it was from a real woman's perspective who was acting in a way that I thought maybe a real woman might a big and important part of that was that I don't believe that women resort to violence very often statistically they don't in my personal experience they don't And there's a reason for that. It's partly because maybe we're less violent by nature. I don't know. That could be. But also it's because, and that's a big part of this movie, is that when we do, we don't win. Right. And that's to me, yes. We don't win. It's not that, I don't know, I don't buy the we're not violent. It's just that, that, that when we do, we don't win. We don't win. Oh, that was good. I would like it to be different, but it, but your point is an interesting one, and I do agree with yeah. you that I would I do want to see more aspirational. Don't tell me that women aren't CEOs, and so you can't have a woman CEO. Like put put the woman as a CEO. Period. Just make it. Yeah. You know, it is art's obligation to lead the way. But yeah, I don't know. For in this one, I don't feel quite the same way. Okay, so. We'll move on to damage. What's your damage, Heather? There was something that Emerald said a lot that really intrigued me and I didn't pick up while I was watching it, but as soon as she said it, made complete sense to me. She said that Cassie is an addict. And I'm like, of course she is. She's very much in this cycle. The only time I might have understood it was the moment when she is at the club going home with the douchebag in the fedora when she has lied to ryan she's lied to ryan she says she has to work and then he spots her out at a club seemingly wasted and all over some guy she's already in this good place with him and she couldn't have stopped herself from doing that and that to me rang very true as an addict and that emerald describes she's in this cycle that she does this thing that makes her feel better for what has happened it makes her feel powerful and it makes her feel in control and those are the moments when she's kind of on top of the world but then as with all highs it comes crashing down and then that brings shame self-loathing and despair and then she chases the need again and so yeah i read that too yeah Yeah. and uh that was something that I didn't need to go back and rewatch it, but but I did need to be told that. And then once, but when she told it, I was like, "Oh my god, that it is made perfect sense." Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. And yeah. that was one aspect of damage that I that I did want to highlight because I I wouldn't have immediately spotted it, but I think it's really true. And and the fact you know it is truly. It, you know, in the beginning, you think, oh, she's just doing this to make herself feel better. But once she's in this relationship with Ryan and she lies to him and she goes out to do this dark thing and get and get this revenge and scare these men, 
you know she's now it has now become something that is harming her it is harming her interest is harming her relationships it is really harming her and so that's when you know this is an addiction it's something she can't stop doing it's not like she just needed to replace the behavior and be like oh if I was happy I would stop doing this she was happy at that point and she couldn't stop doing it yeah yes exactly again another layer that I that you know when you realize how many layers there are to this movie that you're like oh that was so good yeah because yeah. I didn't I read that too and I had the same reaction like oh I didn't think of it while I was watching but when I read it I'm like yes yeah oh yeah yeah so that was all I have for damage do we want to go on to what she said Yes, to our Libra. This this was such, you know, I always love going down the rabbit holes of our creators, like, and finding out more about them, listening to everything they've said about the movie. It just enriches my experience of the movie so much. And it's also why, Kate and I disagree on this, but it's also why I wait until after I've seen the movie and processed it for myself. Because I like to know, like, that's my first layer. Here, Here's me and my engagement with the, the, the media. And then I add on the creator's vision and explanations and details and insights. And it just makes the whole thing so much richer for me. And this was... And I have to do it simultaneously. Yes, I know. I can't. I can't. I do. I have to do it simultaneously. And this one... Oh, I love so Animal good Kennel so much. But I've been I the problem with this is we waited a while here to watch this and so I had already started sort of stalking her and reading <laughs> stuff about her way with all the nominations and you know, one of the only women to get the best director nom like so I had already sort of deep dived into her a little bit, but then I really spiraled. Really spiraled. And now she, I just want her to be my new best friend. Oh, my God. All right. Well, so the basics. She's a triple threat completely. Emerald is a British actress, screenwriter, director, and producer. We've You've already mentioned she's a Libra, air cardinal sign. She's married and now has two very small children. And most importantly, she most recently won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for this movie. So... I mean, she is has no shortage of talent and recognition for that talent, which are not always the same thing. You get recognition without without really having the talent, and then you have the talent and don't always get the recognition. And she is just crushing it on on both levels, which I love to see. Let's see. I wasn't sure how I felt about this, and so I, I kind of felt like that's why I wanted to bring this one because she says so many brilliant things and insightful things that I've already kind of sprinkled throughout. But this one was interesting. She said in early press, she got a lot of inquiry as to whether this was based on something real that, you know, whether this had happened to her or happened to a friend. And she says, what a question. Imagine asking anyone in your life that question. And she says, there's a really paternalistic thing. Women are allowed to be memoirists. They are allowed to talk about themselves, to write about themselves and their lives. They're allowed to notice things, but they're not really allowed to imagine things. People don't ask men who write thrillers if they've ever killed anyone or if they fantasize about torturing someone. Whatever thing a man comes up with, people say, what a terrific imagination. But if you come up with something as a woman, it's she must have had a very traumatic life. And that was 
the the idea that women aren't allowed to imagine things was very striking to me and it it was a little bit reminiscent of conversations Kate that we've had with Allison Wood with Christy Tate yes exactly you know I I heard her say this too when I thought of that yeah Mm -hmm. that lady memoirists right and that right when women you know write their stories that they're brave women are brave for saying the things that are so unappealing but then this is almost it's almost completely opposite of that she's saying like this isn't about me being brave this is about me having an imagination and and dreaming up a scenario and 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 reactions many reactions to those scenarios that I dreamt up I don't know what do you think do you think women aren't allowed to imagine things well when I heard this I thought of like you're saying the memoirs we've spoken to and I think they would disagree with this I think they feel like they are actually like she's suggesting that if you write a memoir and you're that you're that's okay and that'll be accepted because you're allowed to tell your story or you're allowed to notice things but I think they actually feel like that's not necessarily true either or or even though they're allowed to it will be characterized in a certain way and discounted right so I don't know I I think they would disagree yeah but I think if you ask them yeah but I still think the fact I mean the fact is so many more things are acceptable in memoir rather than fiction because it's like there's the idea I mean this is a basic tenet anyway that that it's just true and so therefore there's a lot more leeway because it's true but meanwhile some fiction is truer than than memoir or than nonfiction. And it's not given that same credibility. And so it's like you write it and when it's true and you're discounted, but when it's not true, people think you're lying because it must be true underneath it. Do you think it depends on what they're writing about, what they're imagining? So in this Mm. instance, it has to do with sexual assault. So of course, naturally, you know, these reporters, which she is frustrated by, want to know did this happen to you right. I mean if she wrote when crime writers write about murders I could be wrong but I don't think they think a woman can't imagine that they don't ask you know she said like they don't ask men like have you ever killed someone before right. she wrote about killers do they ask women that probably not either I think if it's something that they think is uniquely female they do believe there's some autobiographical element and yeah maybe that's where it but gets... they don't escape anything though because we talked to Karen Slaughter who said people yeah, right. gave her shit mm-hmm. not that not that it wasn't, not that they thought she didn't make it up, but that how could you make it up? Because, yeah, it, you know, you're you're portraying too much female violence. And she's like, well, this is what happens. And I'm portraying it in an honest way because men aren't doing it quite right. And I'm, yeah. I, I need my voice to be part of that. This happened to Jessica Knoll, right? When she wrote Luckiest Girl Alive. Yeah. You know, she did not reveal that it happened to her right. at first. And she got a lot of questions about it. And and then she, it did come out, I guess, on the paperback tour or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And then she got shit for sort of like, not being a liar, but like perhaps misrepresenting it. The whole thing was so... And twist then it. she had to, yeah, twist it. Yeah. Then somehow she'd done something wrong when really what she was, she had no obligation to re- reveal that. All right. Well, who won 
or oh no wait did you did we get your you as yes kate i feel like i've read so many from yeah. hers throughout this okay. yeah that i stole all my what she said okay. but other than i love emerald fennel and i'd also like to note she's really good friends with phoebe waller bridge so i feel like we should all get together oh, but anyway I, I love that i love that i love that i'm moving that to london so goodbye great. i'm i'm just oh, right i feel like that's better things yeah better things are going on over there artistically (laughs) I can't say otherwise who won the movie I guess I should just go first because it probably encompasses everything else you're going to talk about probably stealing all no it's just no we can talk about each piece of it but to me it's just the aesthetics of this movie yeah the set design the wardrobe the music Thank mine's you. the music so it's all it's all part okay, of this so beautifully wrapped candy basically that can we just start there though because that violin version of toxic I, blew my mind it took me a couple of bars and i was like me too. oh me too. my god this is and i was like singing it before i was really like really understood what it was and it goes on for so long, and by so long, I mean not even enough time. I wanted the entire song to play as she's like, Whoa. oh, as she's walking up to the cabin. It is so perfect, so perfect. Also, incredibly perfect. And to Kate's who won the movie, Angel of Morning at the end. Oh my God! <laughs> Just call me Angel so, of Morning. I'm like, stop it. Oh my God. It yes. was perfect for that ending. And we've already talked about Stars Are Blind by Paris Stars Hilton. Are Blind. There was It's Raining Men at one point oh in the God. beginning. Charlie XEX Boys. Yeah, oh, that's the there's first. The, the music yeah. really is like a character in and of itself. She said, Emerald Fennell, that she sent the playlist to Carrie Mulligan that was and other producers that was at the very beginning that was like one of the first mm-hmm. things she also sent to people to convince them I heard her along with the Pinterest board that was like let me tell you yes. don't read and she was very clear like the words on the paper are not they are they are opposed to everything else you're going to be seeing and feeling and experiencing as you watch this movie and she's like the mood is candy coated the mood is pastels and feminine and it is not what you think when you're reading the words she said i think in general the way this film looks there's kind of a deliberate subversion of the sort of super feminine she said there's this idea that just because you like clothes just because you paint your nails just because you listen to britney spears you're not serious you're not worthwhile these aren't worthwhile things and that is sort of really a sort of dark kind of misogyny and so she really wanted to just blow that out. Yeah. And I thought she did such a good job. Yeah. I mean, this. She literally says Britney. The fingernails. Yes. She says Britney Spears is a genius, as much of a genius as Leonard Cohen or any number of brilliant male artists. She is a huge Britney Spears fan. I'm not sure I would go that far. Oh, mostly because uh, Britney Spears really doesn't write her own stuff. I, I as far as I know, I know. she does also say she loves Taylor Swift. Yes. So Caroline, uh, she mentioned that in something I yes. heard too. This whole movie, the whole look of it is her her wardrobe really stood out to me too. It's so almost infantile. Feminine. These cute little sweatshirts with cherries on them. Like who wears that beyond the age of four? And yet it works for the character. It's it's very subtle. The whole thing it just showed how kind of stunted she was, which she was. And the house, 
Oh my God. The casting was she's, incredible for this movie. Yeah. She said she purposely chose a lot of comedians, people who you don't see. Like he is, you know, in a more of a comedic role and Bo Burnham, right? Yeah. Bo Burnham. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Coolidge, like, you know, she just subverted things at every turn. Yeah. With the casting. Yeah. Allison Brie. I love, I love Alison Brie. I really oh, yeah. love her. I love Connie Britton. Carrie Mulligan said she learned so much from them. She said, you know, comedians are very vulnerable. They are. They're, they're, they get up there and they, they, they're self-deprecating and, you know, they're often sort of making fun of themselves or situations, but, but they're revealing a lot about their emotions and, but in a, in a different way than she's used to. She's obviously more in dramatic roles and, she she said she learned a lot from acting against them, which I thought was really interesting given like she is like the god. So takeaways. All right. So for our takeaways, we have a very special thing going on. And this was part of the reason why we specifically wanted you to come on today. We're going to talk about the Burke test. <laughs> so you want to give us a little background on this yes. and where it came from and, and how you how you explored this. Yes, absolutely. I got my MFA at the Bennington Writing Seminars. And part of your graduation requirements is writing a thesis. And so for most of my time at Bennington, I was writing a lot of short fiction in addition to a novel, all of which centered around like narratives that had to do with sexual violence. And so I was really curious about what the sort of like general market was for how books depict sexual violence in contemporary literature. And so for my thesis, I wanted to research basically that and try to figure out were there any consistencies with how we are depicting instances of rape and assault in fiction. And basically what I found is that for virtually all contemporary popular books, and I mean like books that you find on lists, books that hit the New York Times bestseller list, the type of books that you would find like at a Barnes & Noble shelf, for all of those books, the narratives basically followed the same stereotypes that we see in real life which I thought was super mm-hmm. interesting. And so, you know... The, right. the, and was that your hunch? That's why you wanted to do this research? You know, I I, I, be, yeah. I think it was almost subconscious because the short stories yeah. that I had been writing were like, I would write from the perspective of a rapist just to be like, what does that feel like? Would he have parents? What would he talk right. to them about? Or like, what does it feel like to be the parents of a college student who gets accused of that? And so I think I kind of stumbled my way in. Was this your... Was that your first story in Instagram story, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. My first short story, story, and you, it's still on my Instagram, so people can see it in saved highlights. It's called Dark Matter, and it's published in oh, the New God. Ohio Review, and it's basically four different perspectives, the perspective of parents, of a police officer, and of a lawyer all around this boy who's been accused of sexual assault. So, like, you never wow. get in the head oh. of the boy or the woman who who has accused him, but you sort of experience it from all these different, almost, like, external perspectives. And so I think I love that story. Thank you. And I think, too, I went to the University of Virginia at a time where this was a very like tumultuous period where this was always in the news. I won't go into all of that, but it was it was very much a part of my college experience. And so 
What I found with all of these books was that, you know, it was the same every time to the point that I was surprised I hadn't noticed it earlier. The girl Mm. was always depicted as a virgin to the point of satire. Like in one book that was a hugely successful novel, the the narrator is a young woman and she's given uh, a purity test by a bunch of boys in a middle school. Mm. And the boys Mm. are always kind of these like one dimensional specters that are just purely violent. And, like, they don't have relationships. They don't have wants beyond hurting someone. And so the more I dug into this, the more I thought, like, okay, well, what is the point of this? What is the purpose of me learning about this besides criticizing, you know, writers for basically doing what we always do when we don't know something well enough, which is we fall back on stereotype. Lean on, right. Yeah. And what I did learn at Bennington was that, you know, some of the arguments that people gave about the the huge moral wrongs with racial stereotypes was that they're not just lazy, but there is like a moral imperative to write better literature so that people can explore those different forms of empathy in in private places and, and learn, basically. And so I thought, why don't we apply that same perspective towards this topic, where it's not just that it's lazy writing, but there is a moral imperative for us to avoid these stereotypes so that we can basically not teach, the, not turn these myths into law, which is kind of what I felt like we were doing with literature, like reflecting yeah. a false world into a book to the point of making it seem more real. And so from all of that, I created something that I called the Burke test, which is a little bit of a play on the Bechdel test. And as you guys probably know, the Bechdel test is a hugely popular movie test that was popularized in the 1980s. It was by, I think, Alice, Alison Bechdel. And it asked three questions of a movie. The first is that, does the movie have at least two women in it? Second, do those two women talk to each other? And three, do they talk about something besides a man? And so the point of that test was obviously it's kind of humorous because it seems like such a low bar. And in reality, like so many movies. (laughs) Exactly. And then you look up and there are whole websites dedicated to how many movies do not make this list. Like Goodwill Hunting, two women don't talk to each other. That's just like right off the top of my head. Yeah. And and so, yeah, so I wanted to create a Burke test that kind of felt like, again, a low bar. But then when you start to apply it to literature, then you can kind of say like, wow, this is forcing me to realize the extent to which this this low bar has not been met and maybe encourage people and in particular writers, but hopefully other people, filmmakers or whatever, to hold ourselves to a higher standard, like dropping yourself into cold water and being like, wait, did I really not give this person (laughs) parents or a job (laughs) or any of these things? Yes. So basically, I created three questions, three questions for the, you know, the fictional survivors in literature, and then three questions for the attackers. And so I thought that we could apply each of those questions to to promising young women and see if it passes the test. I love a test. (laughs) Ready for the test. (laughs) Get your pencils ready, ladies. Yeah. Okay. So the Burke test for the fictional survivor. Number one, is the survivor a virgin? And are they described with hyperbolic virginal characteristics like wearing white, etc.? We don't know a, a right. ton about Nina, but we we definitely know that she, well, Alison Brie insinuates that she has a reputation otherwise. Yes. So that goes against the idea that she might be a virgin. Yeah. And I think, too, my second question will play into this. But I know we talked earlier about what a good job they do in just having the instance not be detailed like all we know is that it already happened and so we aren't we aren't given all this information that we are then basically self-taught to 
to, to implicate her with. Right. So number two is the survivor in a lower socioeconomic class than his or her attacker. We Don't have no know. reason to think that's true. We do right. see her mother. We do see her her mother in the house. And they like were that. both so in medical school. In medical so school. Seem, they're yes. seemingly both equals. Sure. Right. Sure. And so number three, and I think most importantly, is the reader, or in this case, the viewer, offered up clear signs or benchmarks that the survivor misses again and again. And by that, I mean, does the narrative imply that the survivor isn't clever or aware enough to avoid the attack in question? That's also no. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's yeah. another brilliant thing that they do in this film is that we don't get any information about what happened leading up to that night. And I think that when you start to think about it, that's super rare. Like most times where this is depicted, yeah. like half the film or half the book is in the moments leading up to the event. And I think I would also just add, you know, I think the reason behind this is that we are taught when we are creating stories to follow the traditional structure of a narrative. And so it's like if the climax is an awful event, then we have to build towards that climax. And mm-hmm. and so I think that what we're also learning is like we have to be more creative with how we tell stories because if you fall back on yes. that narrative structure, then all of a sudden you are playing into a lot of stereotypes and perceptions that are inaccurate and lazy and also not really necessarily the story that you want to be telling the people who are consuming your art. Yes. Yes, good point. Yeah, you were saying that these stereotypes have kind of become law and it is how we look at and how we judge who to believe, whose side are we going to be on? And if they don't pass certain tests or they don't, they have certain qualities, then it's like, well, then I definitely am not going to believe you. And so those stereotypes are damaging, I think, in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, you're saying. I think that's one of the more interesting parts of, you know, this conversation that I had with my advisor at the time was like how, you know, what's even if they are stereotypes, what is the point of that? What is the impact? And then mm. I think that leads to a really productive conversation that people can have where it's like, what do stereotypes in art mean? It's not just that they're boring. It's that they can often be reinforcing like, the most inaccurate parts of humanity and also impacting the way that we see the world and the way that we engage with the world and all of these things that you can then start to like map out with more almost more math behind it if that makes sense like it's always exciting when you're talking about literature or something more abstract and then you realize no there's a lot of science behind this behind why you should or shouldn't do something yeah let's move on to the to the perpetrator yes to the man yes so the burke test for the perpetrators Number one, is the attacker or the perpetrator assigned the physical or emotional attributes of a cartoon villain, i.e., does he grunt, sneer, scoff, rage, etc.? What's his name? Al? Al? Is that his name? Al, Al Monroe. Oh, that's okay, it. Al Monroe. Thank yeah. you. The closest thing of that is he kind of is portrayed as maybe a frat guy yes, type, exactly. right? But that is, even that little bit is counteracted by the first we see of him is his Facebook page where he's just got you know she finally said yes or yay she said yes and it's like as if he's celebrating love and very antithetical to what you think and then at the party he Cassie takes him upstairs he's like you know we're not really gonna do anything he seems almost nervous so he He is saying I'm gonna get married like I don't want to do this like like he thinks this is kind of a practical joke that his friends have played on him and he's like okay like like the joke's over right like 
you know. Right. And so no sneering, no. no and then he even um, cries. I mean, he gets. Yeah. He, I mean, yes. So right. no, yes. definitely not your your stereotypical caricature of a sneering yes. villain. Yeah, yes. and I think, too, the director does an incredible job of introducing most of the characters before we get to the point where we watch the video, where you are basically meeting, in the same way, like, again, very accurate of real life, where you might meet someone and then find out, oh, they, they were accused of that. And then you kind of have to have this moment of conflict where you think, oh, but that I really liked that person. They couldn't possibly do that. Uh-huh. And, it, and it forces yeah. you to kind of acknowledge the complexity of people over time. And that kind of goes into the question number two which is does the attacker have any dreams goals fears hopes or aspirations beyond attacking someone oh definitely yeah well definitely he does he's also he wants to get married so he's in love with someone else which i think is also Mm -hmm. super rare Um, and that's interesting i'm sure that this was intentional that instead of having him want to hook up with the stripper who is obviously carrie mulligan he's a good guy right he doesn't want to do anything because he loves his wife and i think a lesser not a lesser artist but like maybe a less experienced or less intentional artist would absolutely just have him want to hook up with a stripper because that's what you see in every other book or movie you see the guy who has a pattern of bad behavior right Right. and it's this bachelor party you know he could say i get a free pass this is okay but even even that is not she she goes in the completely other direction you're right yeah because it's much scarier to confront the reality and the the truth which is that like it's very possible for someone to want to be a good husband and also to have done something terrible in the past and i think that we rarely have movies or books that acknowledge that fact yes and i think from what we hear early on about him that maybe he was sort of more of the you know as you said the stereotypical frat guy like douchey kind of guy but now when we've met him it's actually plausible that maybe he has changed and now wants to get married and seems focused on you know his future and it it does (laughs) until he murders her well yeah but before that scene right when he gets in there you're like absolutely just like her boyfriend you're like okay so he was part of that but you also are like as he says like are you am i just gonna get penalized for like some bad decision from years ago. You know, there's this whole, she complicates things. Absolutely. Right. And is there the third question? Yes. Yeah, there's one more question. So the final question is, number three, is the attacker redeemable, likable, or any other word you want to put in there in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. I mean, I think we've already talked about that. I'm thinking it almost would be a a better question to ask would be, at any point that you engage with the attacker in the work of art, would you be willing to go get a coffee with them? You know, like that kind of concept of like, are they the type of person that you would associate with? And I think the answer for me is yes, for for all of the men in this movie. There are points where I could see myself being related to them or having a drink with them or being attracted to them. And I think that that's also why the movie is just so phenomenal. What's crazy is this one passes your test with flying colors but how how really challenging that is to find not only passing with flying colors usually it's it's failing on all counts right that's pretty wild that this one stands so far apart from from the rest yeah I'm always conflicted about this because I don't want to name books that I think fail this test wildly but I I do just want to point out one book that does a phenomenal job of depicting sexual narratives 
correctly and I think honestly is The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan. Highly recommend. Okay. And it's it's a contemporary novel that was, you know, recently released and I just would want to give her the shout out that I think that she deserves. And, and so anyone who is curious and seeing like a really refreshing take on so, like a book that passes this test, you know, definitely check it out. So The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan. I will definitely check that out. It's interesting because the Virgin one especially kind of sticks with me. It's like as if that's the only time. I know, understand that there's something fundamental about raising the stakes, right? If a woman has never had sex before and her first time is a sexual assault or a rape, that's so much more terrible. But as if that's the only time it's important. If you get raped and you've had sex before, then it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't, right. that doesn't add up. This test is has is is coming at a perfect time i think women are just beginning to say this is not the narrative we would put out there they all of a sudden feel so incredibly outdated like we can't even have baby steps we just got to throw the whole goddamn thing away and (laughs) do it right differently right doesn't that feel like that yes like Michaela Cole and I May Destroy You, how nuanced that show was. Right. This movie, Promising Young Woman. One of the things that I think about, that I thought about a lot when I was writing this thesis, was that, you know, the the power of art is that when you're engaging with your daily life, I, I think it was David Foster Wallace who basically said, you know, like, this is water. Like, the hardest thing right. to do is to acknowledge and engage with fully and intentionally the world around you. Because again, it just it just becomes water. It's like you're floating and it's, it's so hard to acknowledge all of the things that become default to you. And I think that really good art forces you to re-examine the world around you and recognize things that you have been not just things that you'll never be a part of but like things that you do every single day and you realize oh my god I say that all the time or like oh my god this relationship is is making me realize how many relationships I have like this and it almost it forces you to kind of wake up and pay attention to things that you otherwise would never consciously think of and I think that that is like the the really important role in all the different ways in which we can become like more fully engaged humans and whether it's you know being more aware of how sexual violence really exists in the world or how you know right. you engage across socioeconomic classes like there are so many different ways in which i think our literature has has failed us or 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 like served to mirror back the falsehoods that we are taught in the real world and then there are so many ways in which art can kind of like wake us up and and change everything in a moment like a movie like promising young woman to me can change everything in a moment corinne like you're saying it doesn't have to happen over 40 years like one film or one book like gone girl gone girl fucking changed the game you know like it's yeah all it takes is sort of like one piece of art to really have you be like whoa i am wide awake and i think that that's why it's so important that we hold people to such a high standard I love that. Yes, absolutely. And then people will see it and say, I have my own version of the same thing and I can do it my way. Yes. Because not, a, you know, she, Emerald Fennell here does this dark comedy, this, you know, kind of playing with the pretty outside and the poison inside, as Kate, you said before. So she does it one way, but there's so many other ways to do it. And so I think having something like that out there to kind of jar your mind and go, okay, I can do this in a different way is is exciting. It is. Right. It's a game changer. One of the things that I thought was really mind bending about this movie, I mean, aside from really everything, but was the the villain aspect kind of aside from 
the main storyline of sexual assault, which is between Al Monroe and Nina, right? On one level, he's the clear villain. Cassie is, and Cassie's avenging Nina's, you know, harm. But there's another level with her, Cassie, as her story and Ryan, her boyfriend, played by Bo Burnham, as the villain or the antagonist in her story. And they are even more nuanced. I mean, she put sexual assault in a nuanced way and breaking all the molds the way you just described. But this relationship also adds so much nuance to who is the bad guy? Who is the good guy? I mean, we're talking about we have so many red flags from both of these people like that there's like they're not all on the up and up and and should you trust them and what are they doing and we talked a little bit in damage about her emerald Fennell saying that she thought cassie was an addict and he sees that when he comes to the club and she's leaving with the guy with the fedora and he waves you know he's like well so what she was pretending she was drunk and taking some guy home i mean that's a kind of a big red flag to ignore (laughs) right and then of course he starts out right from the start when they go on she finally feels like she can trust him she goes out on a date with him and then lo and behold he accidentally quote unquote walks by his apartment and she is pissed and she leaves and she throws the trash can and she's she's really upset that she was led astray and thinking this was a good guy when he's not a good guy. This is how all guys just are. And then she's like, well, we were sober. He wasn't really, he wasn't dragging me back to his apartment drunk like these other guys are. So maybe I should give him another chance. She kind of blows off that red flag too. Because I think those red flags are pretty normal behavior when you're not you know in this situation in this movie and so that to me was really interesting like who is the bad guy who is the good guy and there clearly aren't they're both doing things that are noble and he's the he's a pediatric surgeon right like he's you know so profession you're right yeah so they're both doing things that are you know furthering something and some greater good and then also being tragic and terrible people (laughs) i think i think too that one of the things that the movie does really well that you're touching on is that again like to think about how this would happen in quote-unquote real life like i can imagine so many conversations that would happen where if someone was to reference bo burnham's character and say well he was a part of a, a terrible thing 20 years ago the general comment would be he's moved on he has become a good person he was a kid exactly he was a kid he was in college he you know we don't know if he's necessarily amended but like he was a bystander and now he's a different person and the general perspective on you know carrie mulligan's cassie the general perspective on cassie would be there's something wrong with her there's something wrong with this person for being so obsessed about something that was very common in college and that didn't happen to her and i think that that's what's so fabulous about this movie is that you're basically siding with someone in a way that like it will come back to haunt you literally in the same way that haunts her the next conversation you have because you're going to realize holy shit i am about to talk shit about this person and that's cassie Mm -hmm. you know like you realize how people are haunted by this stuff and i think i mean even 
the exact amount to which we see that Bo Burnham is culpable for his involvement. It's not a lot, right? Or it is a lot, depending on what you think. Like, I don't want to say it's not a lot, but Mm. he is not the person who's actually attacking her friend. He's involved. And I think that it's it's a brilliant level of involvement because it is so, it's so in many ways simultaneously impeachable and unimpeachable, especially for a guy in college. We don't even know how drunk he was. They never discussed that. He just says, you know, like, so he could have been blackout. He could have been sober. And it's just that perfect tightrope walk of Mm -hmm. does he deserve to be blamed for this or in any way held accountable to his relative involvement? Right. I, and to your point that this happened, you know, some time ago, the, what I love, and now I don't love this as a life philosophy because I don't actually believe it as a life philosophy, but the movie puts forth very clearly that these people don't change. And they may have changed a lot or a little, but fundamentally they still have whatever impulse was there to protect themselves in this way, and in this way meaning throwing a woman under a bus. Because Ryan does not help Cassie at all when he knows she's in trouble and then when he gets caught out for the video he doesn't apologize doesn't say you know that was terrible I hope we can like let me do make amends and move on he doesn't say any of that he's like you know you're crazy and then he tells her where to go and then he doesn't help when the cops come and then and Al Monroe oh he's so changed she's the love of his life and he can't wait to get married and he doesn't want to have sex with her but he kills her right so these these people haven't changed. Their instinct is protect myself at all costs, especially if that cost is the life of a woman because that's not really important. And mine is more, my life is more important and I will get away with it, which is, you know, yeah. essentially what happens for, for a, a lot of the, the movie. Until the very end, yeah. Yeah, until Cassie has her from the grave vengeance. Mm -hmm. But uh, that also doesn't really track. And it's the fantasy ending we we want and we need for this movie. But I like that she doesn't let them off the hook. This is not a matter of that was so long ago. They've grown up. They've changed. And they have, but they also haven't. And so. Yeah. And it's uh, the fantasy ending in the sense that, you know, there's justice, except she had to die. I mean. So right, it's, yes. it's yes. still not yes. You're right. Really, you're right. You know, I mean, she paid right. a real price for that. But yes, for once no, we I... see, you know, the, getting the revenge or him getting what he deserves. But it, at what cost? In this instance, it right. was her life. Right. And Nina's before that. Yes, so, yes, exactly. And that guy will get some good lawyer, and you know, maybe do a little bit of time. Right. Who knows? It won't even spend yeah, that much time. Right. Exactly. Right. It certainly won't be death the way. Right. The way it was for the two right. of them. Yeah. Yeah. You have a. I had a takeaway. Yeah, I had a little bit of a different takeaway that I think most people would have from the movie, which was just that, uh, you know, I know it is a revenge tale, clearly. But to me, I I was really drawn to sort of the love affair between Nina and Cassie and their, their... their friendship you know I said that to me was really the beauty of it and there are a lot of movies where men become vigilantes and go on revenge because of some harm done you know to their wife or their children but you don't usually see one where a it's a woman who's the vigilante and b that she's doing it in the name of or in honor of her friend and right not for herself exactly and you know we talked about that scene where she gives that speech to al before 
when she's sort of on top of him and she's like, say, you know, saying Nina's name. That's what she wants him to hear, honoring her friend by saying her name out loud. And then even the heart charm necklaces that you see that the, each of them mm-hmm. wears, which reminds you of, you know, little grade school when you guys each had a half of the heart. <laughs> and, and that's what you see at the end. And to me, that that really struck me, the relationship between those two. And I thought that was a really interesting element an additional layer to this that I think made it more complicated than just her being on some crazy revenge spree you know so I really like that aspect I will say I hadn't seen it that way until you started talking about it which is why another reason I love talking about things and Caroline we had this with Animal too Mm -hmm. we just saw different things they were not in conflict they only expanded my my view of things because I might have said this is kind of a fucked up friendship but it's not now that I thought about it it's what's fucked up is Cassie's continuation of it and perpetuation and I think it goes with what Emma Fennell said it's the addict behavior of what happens after that is the destructive part of it but could you imagine I mean could you imagine if this was a relationship and instead of dying the person that you loved so much like just broke up with you I mean she would be a crazy stalker off the wall person she is still actively years later weekly going out and getting revenge or more than weekly going out and getting revenge on behalf of what had happened on also people that had nothing to do with it which is what she's doing throughout until ryan comes back into her life so it's a little fucked up and twisted but i think that is really more speaks to cassie's addict behavior than it does about the fundamental friendship which which you're right. And there, if I had, now Kate, if I had had your point of view, I would have written a crystal ball about the prequel type of thing where they, we see yes. them as friends. That's what I'd like to see. That would have been, that would be awesome. Yeah, that I could see. I love that. It definitely was surprising to me. And I had maybe a hard time understanding that she would do this for someone but it was never questioned, so I didn't have to grapple with that, really. It was just, this is what she was doing. It didn't yeah. matter if I understood it or not. It was never questioned. And so it was just, this is this is her thing, and this is what she's doing. Do we have anything else? I love the movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's that, too. A plus. We need more of these. I'd watch a million variations, right? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll do it again. Thank you for having me. I love what you guys are doing. And Corinne, I love you forever and always have loved you. And Kate, I love you now that I know you. And and it's just such an honor to be a small part of what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. You're going to make me blush. (laughs) This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.